Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. We are a Jesus-centered community in El Mirage, Arizona. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. Uh, well, we are back in the book of Colossians. Uh, really, it's not a book. We've said it's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Church of Colossae, uh, which is located uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's now just really ancient ruins, large earthquake in 60 AD, kind of leveled the place. Um, uh, 62 AD, sorry, leveled the place, and it's really never been uh, unearthed. It just kind of sits there. So uh, Paul was writing to a young church to kind of keep them established in the faith. There was some false teaching that was making its way into the church, uh, and Paul was kind of pushing back because this false teaching was basically saying that Jesus was not sufficient, that Jesus was a good start, but that Jesus is not complete. And so Paul's message into this young church was to remind them about the gospel message and basically saying Jesus is enough. He would say things like Colossians 1.19, where he said that God was pleased to have all his fullness. Last week we talked about that phrase and how he repeats this idea of fullness. All his fullness dwell in him. Paul was coming against a Gnostic, uh, a Gnostic teaching uh, that taught that um, while God was holy and divine, that the earth was foreign to the glory of God. And what they believed that the glory of God was diffused the closer that it got to earth. And so that presented a problem because Jesus now, who was in an earthly realm that they viewed all matter as being sinful, Jesus could not be the fullness of God and he could not be uh, the, the, the coming Messiah and the fullness of God because he was in bodily form. And the, the glory of God is diffused the closer it gets to earth. And so their idea was that Jesus is insufficient. And so Paul begins to build this idea that Jesus actually is sufficient for all things. He reminds him again in chapter 2, verse 9, where he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. We said last week that phrase, all the fullness, is redundant. That fullness, by definition, covers all. It is, if it's full, it is everything, right? But he's saying this thing that all the fullness of deity, Paul was driving home uh, a point saying that the fullness of the fullness, that Jesus is not insufficient, but the fullness of the fullness of God dwelt in him in bodily form, not in spirit form, but in bodily form. He's pushing against this false teaching, making its way into the church. And then Paul says, what does this mean to us? Verse 10, he says, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. Because the fullness of the fullness of God is in Jesus, and Jesus is now in you, Paul says, you now have been brought to fullness. What is he saying? He's saying, you lack nothing. That Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. That you need to add nothing to your faith. That Jesus is sufficient, and it is Jesus alone. So today we're going to be in chapter 3. Paul kind of shifts gears a little bit uh, in his letter and we will dissect that and see what God has for us today. So let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Spirit, um, come and speak to each one of us. I want to start by just thanking you that um, our future will be full of the fullness of God. 
uh, even as we just sang, that as we submit ourselves to you and we look to you, that your promise is that you will be with us and that you will lead and guide and direct, that you will redeem that which has been broken, you will redeem that which has been hurt, and you will restore. And so we place ourselves in that position. We place ourselves before you. So would you come, have your way, speak to us clearly today. Speak to us through your word. We give now in our offering uh, as an attitude of worship, as an attitude of placing you first. I pray your uh, blessing over our finances even as we place our finances under you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Colossians 3, verse 1. I'm going to ask you a question, so get ready. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Now, this is your chance to talk back to me. Who is Paul speaking to right now? But us specifically is who? He's speaking to believers, right? He's not speaking to everyone. Paul says, if then, right? It's conditional. If you know Christ, if you have been raised with Christ, what Paul is about to say, he's speaking to you. He's speaking to believers, those who have been raised with Christ, right? The chapter 2 talks about us being buried with Christ in baptism, that our old being is put to death. And then he talks about the imagery of us coming out of the water, and that is us taking on a new life, that the resurrection of Jesus becomes our resurrection, that whatever is dead and decaying and dying in me, that Jesus resurrects it. That's what he's in the process of of doing. His resurrection is my resurrection because the resurrected king is resurrecting me. All right, he continues. If then you have been raised with Christ, he says this, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God for you have died, meaning your old nature have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now we're going to focus on that phrase, seek the things that are above. And Paul's going to draw a distinction between two cultures. He's going to draw a distinction between the culture above in the kingdom of God and the culture below the kingdom of this world. Things above and things below, it will become a common theme in our message today. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, then set your heart, seek, set your sights on, fix your thoughts on, not on the culture of the kingdom below, but fix your thoughts, your attention, your pursuit on the culture of the kingdom above, the kingdom of God. So here's some good news. Scripture is clear that if you are in Christ, you have been transferred out of this earthly kingdom below and that your future, you have been brought into the kingdom of God above. Look at Philippians 3. It says, and they glory in their shame. It's talking about those who glory in the kingdom below with their minds set on earthly things, things below. But our citizenship, Paul says, is in heaven, things above, right? And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been transferred out of this kingdom below and the culture below, and we've been transferred into the kingdom above and into the culture above. He says this in Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints. Now, when I was a younger man, uh, I remember applying for a loan, and then I would wait, that death wait, wondering if I would qualify for the loan that I so desperately needed. And in order to qualify, 
especially when they found out that I was a pastor making zero money, uh, I had to qualify myself, you know, show uh, proof of my income for the last 18 years, uh, put my firstborn up for collateral, reference letters, pastoral reference letter, right? All of this stuff to see if I would qualify for what was needed. Here's what Paul is saying. You did not qualify for this kingdom. You have been qualified for it. That it's nothing that you've done. It's nothing that you can achieve. It is simply a gift that God says, you, I am qualifying you to be part of my kingdom. Verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain, the kingdom below, of darkness and transferred us, transplanted us to the kingdom of his beloved son, things above, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, above and below. We've been brought into this new kingdom. Now, Talking about two kingdoms, and we're talking about a culture, let me just kind of give you three elements of a kingdom. Every kingdom has an authority structure. Doesn't matter what it is, uh, doesn't matter what it looks like, every kingdom has an authority structure. In other words, uh, every kingdom has someone in charge who is calling the shots, whether it's a country, whether it's a state, a school, a business, even a family has an authority structure. Second element of a kingdom is every kingdom has a culture that is set by the ruling authority. Every kingdom, every country, every business, every church, every family, whatever your, quote, kingdom is, has a culture. There's a certain protocol that you follow. There's a value system that is connected to that kingdom. The ruling party of that kingdom, the ruling authority of that kingdom, sets the culture right? So follow me what I'm saying. Um, Parents, you are setting the culture for your family. You have both set it and you continue to set the culture for your family as the ruling authority of your family. Managers, you set the culture for your place of business, for your employment. Pastors set the culture for their church. And the good father sets the culture for his kingdom. Now this is all going to come into play in just a little bit. The Father sets the value system for His kingdom because He is the ruling authority. He sets the culture for His kingdom. Just as Satan, the prince of this world, Scripture tells us, has set the culture for His kingdom below. All of humanity, every one of us, will function and participate in one of these two kingdom cultures. Every kingdom has an authority structure Every kingdom has a culture that's been established by the ruling authority. And number three, every kingdom seeks to expand its territory. Now, this idea is somewhat lost on us today because there's no uh, last frontier, at least on earth. But much of human history is marked by expansion and conquest to increase influence, authority, and rule. Every business wants to expand their business, right? Every church wants to expand their message into their community. Um, every, every parent wants to expand their influence over their children, especially into their teenage years. And so every kingdom, whatever that is, business, organization, church, country, uh, uh, parents, family, wants to expand. And so the king of the kingdom that we serve wants to expand his culture into the world. The king of the kingdom of God wants to expand his uh, value system into the world. He wishes for none to perish, Second Peter tells us, but he wants all to come to repentance. 
The kingdom of God wants to expand in my life. It wants to have more influence over my thoughts and my behaviors and my decisions. The kingdom of God wants to expand. But here's the thing. The kingdom below also wants to expand. The kingdom above wants to expand, but the kingdom below, the kingdom of this earth, the kingdom of evil also wants to expand. And because of that, Paul gives us this warning in verse 5. He says, if then, here's the qualifier, if then you have been raised with Christ, put to death, therefore what is earthly, or the things below, above and below. Seek the things above, he says in verse 1. And then he tells us, just kind of manage the things that are below. That's actually not what he says, but that's what we do, right? Have you ever tried to manage your sin? Have you ever tried to leash it? Have you ever tried to contain your sin? Have you ever tried to cage your sin? Eventually, if you try to leash your sin, eventually your sin will leash you. Why? Because the kingdom below wants to expand. And so Paul says, look, just don't try to leash your sin. Don't try to contain it, but it needs to begin to be put to death, right? It's because uh, of every kingdom wants to expand. Now, Paul begins to break down what the kingdom below, and shortly we'll talk about the kingdom above, what that begins to look like. He says, here's the kingdom below. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, things below. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, meaning you were once part of the culture below, But that is the old you, and your allegiance has changed. You now have a new king, and you've adopted a new culture that is being driven by the king of that kingdom. Colossians 3.8 says this, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Now, there's a lot of tension in this passage. And the church has historically used passages like this to guilt people um, into behavior modification that is fueled by their own effort and driven by their own resolve. And what happens is, uh, without being empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, we, we, we you know, come up with this idea, I'm going to stop doing it, and we do well for a week, and then we fall, and we feel guilty, and we put shame upon ourselves, and we wonder why we are the only ones who can't seem to get over this when it seems like the rest of the church has already conquered it. Let me give you a secret. None of us has conquered it, right? This is the transition that we're in. The Bible calls it sanctification. We are all in the process of being sanctified. We're all in the process of putting these things to death, or rightly said, that Jesus is in the process of putting these things to death in us. He is the one that brings about the transformation. We're in the process of being renewed. We talked about this last week, that on my wedding day, I was declared a husband. I went from single man to husband in one second, right? I now pronounce you husband and wife. I was declared a husband, but I didn't know how to be a husband. I have spent the last almost 27 years trying to become what I have already been declared to be. And we said that is the invitation of the gospel, that you are declared holy, you are declared righteous, you are declared full. Now, you are been declared it, but do you still have some things hanging around? Yes. The invitation of the gospel is for us to become what we have been declared to be. 
And so this is the process that we are in. Jesus is sanctifying us. Jesus is changing us. He is changing us into the person that he has already declared us to be. Our job is to stay close. Our job is to stay connected to the vine. John 15 talks about that. That fruit comes by being connected or close to Jesus. So that's our job. We stay close. Jesus provides the change and begins to put to death those things that are in us. Look at verse 10. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, notice the putting something off, putting something on, which is being renewed. It's in the process of being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the, creation, of the creator. We put something off our old nature, the old culture, and we put something on the new nature of the new culture of the God that we now follow. And that new nature is in the process the process of being renewed and being transformed. The invitation is for you and I to become what we have already been declared to be because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. So how do we do this? How do we set our minds on the things above? It's not self-induced. It's not self-led behavior modification. Uh, So let me start with this. What activities stir your affection for the things of God? What activities stir your affection for Jesus? What activities stir your mind to be set, not on the things below, but on the things above? Because each of us have been created differently. What works for me may not be something that works for you. So let me just give you seven ideas. I talked about this not too long ago, so I'm going to go through it really quickly. Uh, Let me give you seven pathways to set your mind on the things above. Now, don't let the word pathways fool you and thinking this is some new age stuff. Just because a new age sect used it doesn't mean we have to throw out the word, right? Uh, and so let me just give you seven paths, pathways of setting your mind on the things above. For some, you'll have an intellectual pathway. People on an intellectual pathway, they draw close to God as they learn about Him. Usually these are people who love to read. They have a pile of books by their bed. That's, just, that's how you set your mind on the things above. Other people... You have a relational pathway. Uh, You can't wait to get to church because you just want to talk to someone. You experience God and the things of God when you are in relationships. And it doesn't matter who you're talking to, you just want to talk to someone. If you're in a line, a line means an opportunity to make a new friend because that's just in your personality. If you're an intellectual type, you hate these people, right? You want to be left alone. Let me read my book. Leave me alone. Maybe your pathway is a serving pathway. Uh, serving pathway, people find the presence of God, the things above seem most tangible when they are actively involved in helping others. They take Matthew 25, 40 to heart, that when you do this to the least of these, Jesus says, you're actually doing it to me. If you have a serving pathway, you have to be involved in serving. You have to carve out time for that. Maybe you have a worship pathway where you have a natural gift of expression and celebration and something in you is released when worship and praise is given voice. You have to make time for that. Maybe you have an activist pathway where you have a passion to act. Other people in your life, they'll hear a sad sad story, they'll hear something that's going on, and they'll shake their head and say, what a shame, and you're like, no, 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 we have to do something. Right? You want to go to bed at night knowing that you made a difference. Maybe it's a contemplative pathway. You love large blocks of uninterrupted time alone, and you crave silence. And if you're a new mother and you have a contemplative pathway, good luck. You are in major trouble, right? 
reflection comes naturally to you. For you, God is most present when distractions and noises are removed. People, if you have a a contemplative pathway, people drain you. No, it's worse than that. People bug you. You don't really like people all that much, to be honest, right? You just like to be, that's how you, you set your mind on the things above best when things are quiet. Uh, The last one is a creation pathway. Uh, Creation types find that they have uh, a passionate ability to connect with the things of God, the things above, when they're experiencing the world that God has created. So here's my question. How are you seeking the things above? Now, there are things that we all should be doing, right? We all need to be reading or listening to, uh, to God's Word. I encourage you to begin praying, just communication with God. But you need to determine, because each one of us are different, you need to figure out what is your pathway, the way that God has wired you, that you best set your mind on the things above, and you need to make time for those, for those events. If not, you will begin to wither. And so when Paul says, if then you've been raised in Christ, you need to set your mind on the things above, how are you doing that? Right? I want to give you something concrete, not just, hey, set your mind on the things above. I want to give you ways that we can begin to actively participate in that. And part of that is discovering the way that God has wired you. Verse 11, he goes on and he says this. Here, meaning in this new kingdom, in this new culture, in this new reality, in his church... He says, there is not Greek and Jew, there is not circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He echoes the truth that he speaks later to the church of, uh, to the Galatians, where he says this, Galatians 3, 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, neither is there male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying. Please listen. Paul is saying, in here, in this new reality, in this new kingdom culture that we should be living in, in this new culture that God has established, in this culture that reflects the king of the kingdom that we are in, there should be no prejudice inside of this culture. That's what he is saying. And he drives his point home repeatedly in the New Testament, where he says, in this culture, racism and prejudice thinking and and ideologies that elevate one man over another, it should have no place in this new culture that God has established in us. In other words, he's saying this, in the church, you should do no harm. That the church, the new kingdom culture, should be a safe place for everyone. His words are spoken into a culture, understand this, that was built and sustained on hierarchy and elitism. In the first century, it was common to assign different value systems to different races and ethnicities. Foreigners, women, and children generally regarded as property of the male uh, Jewish patriarch, uh, largely in, in this culture. Foreigners were often being employed uh, as bonded labor, uh, enslavement to pay off debt, which made it uh, almost impossible to ever live as a free individual. Jews looked down upon their uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, women could not freely worship with men. Uh, a, a person who is in uh, uh, slavery, paying off a debt, 
would never be able to worship with the free individual. And it is into this culture that Paul says, in here, in this culture that God has now established, if you are in Christ, in this renewed state, in the church, we are all equal because we are all one. And he says this, and believe me, this was a problem. Because if you would have read some of what he was saying as a Jewish man, you would not have been happy. Now, I wish I could tell you that the church has traditionally gotten this right. But we have not. Uh, You don't have to read very far into the book of Acts that gives the account of the early church to see there was a problem. The Hebraic Jews... Uh, overlook the Hellenistic Jews, Hellenistic Jews, those with uh, Greek connection, Greek background, uh, in the distribution of food to the widows. And so early on, they were saying, well, our Hebrew Jewish widows are elevated above the Greek Jewish widows, and so we're going to give them preferential treatment, and we're going to give them more supplies. And Jesus had not been gone very long, and already we're starting to designate classes that God does not endorse. And so here it is, Acts 6, where uh, the, the leaders of the church had to step in. When the culture below came into the culture that is supposed to be the culture above, the f- church leaders stepped in. Matter of fact, for the first time we read that the church gathered all of the disciples together and said, look, we have a problem that needs to be solved. Because this is not the kingdom and the culture above. We have a serious issue of racial divide that is taking place. And the division that is common in the world cannot be common in the culture of God. Now, let's bring this closer to home. According to the latest Pew Research polls, it seems that the current cultural climate has intensified the angst and racial tension and division. The share of Americans who are saying that uh, racism is a big problem has almost doubled since 2011. Now, let that sink in. Americans who say racism is a big problem almost doubled since 2011. How does the church that is living under this new kingdom and a new culture, how does the church respond to this kind of brokenness? How is the church supposed to lead in healing this racial tension? Is the church, and you are the church, so let me ask you, are you willing to say that any type of division Any type of speech, any type of organization, any type of policy that elevates the value of one individual over another is not just a moral problem, but it is a sin problem. Nobody's willing to say that, apparently. If, if, now I'm going to give you another chance because if, if you don't feel it's a sin problem, you need a new pastor, and I will gladly step aside, start the car, right? Listen carefully to what I'm saying. Are you willing, as those who live in the new culture, who are bound by a new kingdom, are you willing to say that any type of division, any type of speech, any type of organization, any type of policy that elevates the value of one individual over another is not just a moral problem, but it's a sin problem? That should be an issue for those of us who are in Christ because we live under a new culture. And so we have an opportunity to put the gospel on display by... Uh, addressing the sinful division that's caused by racism, discrimination, and prejudice. Because we are all image bearers of God, and because we are image bearers of God, listen carefully, any ideology and any rhetoric that makes the brown man your enemy needs to go. Any rhetoric, 
Any ideology that makes the black man your enemy is antichrist. It has nothing to do with the teachings of Jesus. Any philosophy that makes the white man, that makes the woman, the homosexual, the Muslim, the Democrat, the Republican, your enemy and creates division has no place in the kingdom of God because we no longer live under the oppression of that fallen culture. That is what Paul is telling us. That's for us. You can applaud for that because you should applaud for that. That is what Paul is telling us. Now, I'm going to jump ahead here. Listen to how strongly he, he, he talks about this. The ethnic warfare in the early church was between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul addressed this racial divide between the two, and he addressed it head on. Go ahead to Ephesians 2, will you? Bring up that slide. He says, For in Christ, for Christ himself has brought peace to us, and he united the Jews and the Gentiles. Now listen, listen. If you were a Jewish man and you read that, you would not have been happy because you had a place of prominence. You were elevated above the Gentile. He united the Jews and the Gentiles into what? Into one people. When? When his own body, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the walls of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law, which its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating, I love this, in himself one new people from two groups. Together, as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Now, take whatever two people groups you want, and substitute Jew and Gentile, and the word of God is exactly the same. That he would say, I put to death the hostility between these two groups, and my goal is to take two and form them into one new group as followers of Christ who live under a new kingdom and live under a new culture. That's what Paul was speaking into, and it was a harsh word to hear. Now, let me address... um, a recent trend in the church that you may not know of, uh, you may have not heard of it, but um, you know, because of what I do, these are things I try to keep up on. There are blogs that I read, articles I read, and things like that. Feelings have heightened uh, over the past six years where black Christians are now uh, looking at the white evangelical church And they're asking, where is your voice? And the African-American church is now looking at the white evangelical church and they're saying, why are you so silent on issues that are are destroying our people? And they're asking, where is the white evangelical church when it comes to young black men who are being shot and killed? They are asking, where, this is not me saying this, where is the white evangelical church for black men who can't walk down a street without, without being harassed? Where is the white evangelical church for a black man who cannot enter his apartment without proving that he lives there? Where is the voice of the white evangelical church for a, a college student, an African-American college student who can't be in her dorm without being harassed and being made to show proof that she's in that college? And they are asking, where are you in our plight? And we've been silent. We've been uh, afraid, uh, withdrawn to address issues that are not 
reflecting the culture of the kingdom of God that we live in. And we, we who are followers of Christ, we must stand against systemic and rooted evil of all kinds. Meaning that we do not have the luxury to say, well, I am not a racist, therefore my job is done. We cannot say the debris is not on my side of the street, therefore I'm good. As followers of Christ who live by the king of the new kingdom and reflect the culture of this kingdom, we must actively stand against and fight against systemic rooted evil that puts one individual over another. That is the role of his church. That is what we stand for. And there is an entire group of our brothers and sisters who are asking, where are you at in this? And we must begin to respond. Dr. King once referred to 11 a.m. Sunday morning as the most segregated hour in America. Uh, And it sadly holds true. You know, in 1960, out of the 100,000 churches that were in the South, uh, 100,000 churches... Only less than half uh, or less than two dozen had any African Americans in their congregation. A hundred thousand churches in the South and less than two dozen. That's crazy. That is cr- and that's not very long ago, right? Your par- my parents were there in their prime at that time, in that season. And so this idea of 11 o'clock being the most racially segregated hour in America, I think it breaks the heart of God. It's not part of the kingdom and the culture of God. According to Rice University sociologist Michael Emerson said, churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they inhabit. And they are 20 times more segregated than the nearby public schools. Because we've bought in this idea that there is white worship and black worship and Hispanic and Asian, and, and, and it's, it's not a snapshot of the kingdom. Matter of fact, God gave uh, John a snapshot of a vision of heaven, of a multi-ethnic worship gathering, where he said, a great multitude that was so large no one could count. And he said, and here in this great multitude were people from every nation and from every tribe and people from every language and tongue standing before the throne and before the Lamb of God. In other words, heaven is not homogeneous. We're not going to get to heaven and have a white section, an African-American section, and an Asian section, and a Hispanic section. That is all of us together in Christ worshiping around the throne. Do you get it? And so if that is the kingdom culture above... Let's bring that kingdom culture below. So here is my wish. Here is my hope as senior pastor of Reveal. And if you've been here, you know I don't drop that phrase senior pastor very often. I introduce myself as one of the pastors. Uh, I'm one of many either on staff or lay pastors that, that make this thing happen. But let me, let me pull the grand poobah card just for a moment as the senior pastor. My hope... Um, is that we will be a multi-ethnic church where we will have African-American families worshiping next to Hispanic families, worshiping next to white families, worshiping next to Asian families, worshiping next to people who were born in the States, worshiping next to people who immigrated to the States. And together, those of us who are in Christ see each other as equal and we worship Him together. That is a snapshot of the kingdom of God. 
That is a snapshot of what I think God says, yes, this, this is my people coming together, and I broke down, I kicked down the wall of hostility between the two parties. That is a picture of the kingdom culture that God is inviting us into. And so Paul says, look, there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no barbarian, there's no female, there's no male, there's no slave, there's no free. We are all together. Christ leveled the playing field, and we're all on equal ground, all recipients of the same grace that make us one. Racial reconciliation. It's not a liberal issue. It's not a conservative issue. It's a biblical issue. Now, you know, problems I have with the idea of racial reconciliation. I don't really like the terms. It um, implies that at one time there was conciliation, and I don't know if we ever had that, just to be honest. I think we have a long way to go. But I think the church can lead in that step. And we can demonstrate the kingdom and the value system of God here among us. Amen? Amen. Stand with me, church. So every time that I give a message like this, the church gets a little smaller the following week. Uh, But next week is Thanksgiving and everyone's going to be out of town, so I won't know if it's my message or Thanksgiving. So I will sleep better next week. This was strategically planned, right? Uh, Next week, uh, I'm uh, leading worship and we'll do a lengthy worship set, uh, a a longer worship service. So uh, come next week, be prepared to kind of experience uh, what God might have for you. Be open to the moving of the Holy Spirit next week, and I hope to see you. If you have plans, Thanksgiving, have a wonderful uh, holiday, and uh, let's let's pray. All right, Lord, uh, some of that might be difficult to hear. Sometimes we want to put um, certain things above the gospel, um, but my hope is, is that the gospel would be our primary source of truth and that all other things would fall underneath that. And your word is crystal clear that uh, you have no room, there is no place for elitism and elevating one over another in your kingdom culture. And you destroyed that type of thinking, and the hostility between the two. And so we just want to reflect that, and we want to step into that moment and step into that space. Just going to allow a moment. You allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. What might the Holy Spirit be saying to you? Maybe you need to Take something off. Maybe you need to put something on. Father, we want to reflect the culture of the kingdom that we have been transplanted into. And so let us be sensitive 
to the plight of our brothers and sisters around us. Let us be champions for truth. Let us stand against injustice. And let us model the kingdom as we continue to step into being the people that you have declared us to be. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Hey, listen, Thanksgiving is on Thursday. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Be blessed. You have much to be thankful for. And just remember, anything you eat on Thanksgiving does count towards your caloric intake. Happy Thanksgiving. If you need prayer, come on up. We'd have someone pray for you. God bless you.